Hi, I'm Brittany. Welcome to the Seated Sisterhood Bible Study. Here, we plan to go deep into the Word of God so that you can develop a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus. So come on into the room. Pull up your seat at the table because we've been waiting for you. Let's dive in. Hello, Seated Sisters. Welcome back to our Seated Bible Study where we're studying Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to dive right in. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you so much for my sisters. God, I pray that as we pull our chairs up to the table, as we grab our seats on the couch and we grab hands with one another, that as we set the table, that you would come and meet with us, that your presence would be tangible and that we would get to know you better, God, because it's not just for intelligence to say we know a lot, God. We really want our hearts to be changed and we really want our lives to reflect that we walk intimately with you. Lord, would you show us who you are in these pages? Would you reveal more of your character in your heart? And God, if there's something you want us to do in response, would you make that just so clear, so evident for those of us who even feel like we can't hear from you, God, would you just knock us over the head with the message until we get it, until we lean in? God, I pray that you would show up for your daughters today, for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start off. And the way this is going to be structured is I'm going to actually walk through some things I've seen in each of the sections. So the first section was Ephesians chapter one, excuse me, chapter two, verses one through 10. The next section were verses 11 through 16. And then the last section was uh, 17 through 22. And so I'm going to kind of run through the things that I believe that God wants to elevate and kind of draw attention to at least from things he showed me. You might have seen something different and that's perfectly fine. And then at the end, I'm going to highlight three main thoughts or themes from each of those sections that I think we need to carry forward with us and some possible action steps we might be able to take. So I'm going to try to keep each section of scripture kind of on time of about 10 or 12 minutes. So if you're starting this video and you may not get to finish, check back in Bali for the time code and you'll be able to kind of jump to the next section. And then of course, I'll include the time code for the finale. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to do the same thing we did last week. We're actually bought up the verse for us to kind of walk through as we're studying. And so I'm going to go ahead and do that. And we're going to jump right into basically studying together. So we are in chapter two. And like I said, I'm going to do the first section. So that's right here up at the top verses one through 10. So, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. So before we move on from this, I want to draw our attention to something I think that is pretty huge that we often overlook when we're reading, I think. And it's this beautiful thing called a conjunction, right? So hopefully you can see it there, but you see this word here, it says, and, okay? That word and is so crucial to our understanding of the text, okay? Because we can't really dig deeper into this and if we aren't gonna go back and look at the verses before that. So that's actually what we're gonna do right now. And if you go back up a little bit, you'll see that the verse we were just talking about, that last section here was when we were talking about how Jesus had given us his inheritance. Everything had been placed under him. We are all under his feet. And it says his body, that is the 
that is the fullness of the one that fills all things in every way. Okay, so everything comes in his feet. We talked about last week about being brain dead if we are not connected to our head, which is Christ's head. So now that we're recognizing that, now that we're putting that into perspective here, okay, we're putting that into perspective. I want you guys to get the image then that we're getting with the and, okay? This is a connect point for us. This is really going to draw us right in to what we're talking about here, okay? So he's what he's saying is that, and you were dead. That connection for me is so crucial because we were talking about last week how you are dead if you are brain dead, if you're not connected to the head. And he's saying, and you were dead because he's talking to the church of Ephesus and they were not connected to Christ. They were not connected to God in any way, actually. Um, and actually, Jewish believers, they weren't connected to Christ in this way either. So he's basically saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were not connected to me at all. And I want you to understand that as we're walking through Ephesians, especially in chapter two, I saw a lot of contrast this week. There were a lot of places where I felt like Paul was drawing this line almost of saying, this is how you were. This is how you are. This was the way you acted before. This is the way you act now. This is the inheritance you had before, which was sin and death. Now in Christ, we have life more abundantly. There's just this constant back and forth because he's trying to say, as well as you knew your life before, I want you to know how opposite your life in Christ is now. And I just believe that's exactly what Paul is showing them here in this text, because he's saying, and you were dead. Like this is something that was a part of who you are, but it's no longer that way. That is no longer how God sees you. That is not how you need to see yourself. It says you were dead. And it says, and then he goes on in verse two and it says, and you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the ruler and authority of the air and the spirit now working the sons of disobedience. Okay. I'm going to be transparent right here. This kind of hit me in my throat because I think one of the things I can get caught up in, um, not even just in ministry, just as a mom and as a human being is jumping on the next thing that I see exposed on social media, the next trend, the next idea for mental health and relaxation. And there are a lot of great tools and great information out there. But I think if we aren't careful, that will lean to the spirit of this world, the rulers of the air, the ideas of our culture, more than we lean on the spirit of Christ. And so this one kind of hit me as I begin to really dig into it. And so I kind of want to share with you guys, if that's okay, just a little bit what the Lord kind of showed me with this, because he was like, look, well, you were dead, but I raised you out of this death. And he goes on later in this section to talk about where he actually positioned us after he raised us up. But he pauses here to say that you used to be under the influence of the spirit of this world. And so I, I wanted to look up that kind of phrase of the spirit of this world. And there were several cross references that came up that I kind of want to talk about. And I'm going to give you guys these. And so I'm going to give you a little tip. If somebody is ever preaching or telling about verses and you want to be able to go back and look up these things later, always listen out for the chapter in the verse and write those down first, because most times we remember the book. Um, and even if you, it's like a first Peter, second Peter kind of thing, you'll know at least to go to one of the Peters. So try just, that's just a little mnemonic I learned a while ago that kind of helps me. So the first cross-reference for that term spirit of this world, I know most of this, we hear that and we think immediately to Satan, but 
it actually, um, throughout scripture, we can see that this reference is given a lot of places. Paul uses it several times, but so does Peter. And it actually very clearly identifies how we can recognize whether we're walking under the spirit of this world or whether we're walking in the spirit of God. We know the fruit of the spirit that is in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering. There are several of those that are in that are evidence of the fruit of the spirit of God working in our life. But here are some things that are evidence if you're walking according to the spirit of this world. Second uh, Peter 2.20 tells us that it's impure and that through our knowledge of Jesus Christ, we've actually escaped its entanglement. So it is something that entangles us. It tries to capture and grab a hold of us and it's hard to get out of it. But and it's and it's impure. It's in opposition to what we would think of when we would think of Christ. But that as we come into the knowledge of Christ Jesus, as we grow in our knowledge of who he is, which is exactly what we're talking about in Ephesians, as we dig more into who he is in our lives, we actually begin to escape the old mindset and the spirit of this world that we were subject to. Second uh, Peter 2.10 tells us that it pollutes our desires and it makes us despise authority in bold arrogance, okay? So, and it also goes on to say that we will slander those who stand for righteousness. So I think when I first saw this, I thought of those people who um, love to call up people who are wrong, love to call up people in the church, love to talk all about all the things that people are doing wrong. And I'm not saying that there isn't a need for people to be called out on certain things, but I think we have to draw the line in the sand when our mouth is being more used to call out the bad than it is to also recognize and applaud the good. Felicia Masonheimer, who is an excellent theologian, female theologian that I think all of you guys should follow. She has a Instagram account account called Every Woman a Theologian. And she teaches about the deep theological issues that most people skim over when it comes to women. But one thing she said that has stuck with me, she said, discernment is not something that is just there to call out all the bad things that are happening. If you are operating in true discernment, then you will also elevate the good. You will, you know, speak encouragement. You will shout out from the rooftops, the good is going. We can't be like this world's news cycle. Our lives cannot be just consumed with the negative. It it will pollute our desire. We will start to want things that don't align with what God wants. Um, and it'll make us despise authority. We'll start getting distasteful and distrustful with the people who God has put in authority of our lives. Um, we will nitpick the way that they lead, forgetting that they are also human. These are just things that can happen if we give into that spirit of the world. So those are just some examples I thought of. I'm sure you guys can think of plenty and I would love to hear about it in our chat or in the comments below. Another cross-reference, Jude 8. And so it says, in the same way these people were relying on their dreams, they defile their flesh. There's a bunch of ways the Bible tells us about defiling our flesh. And it usually is referring to... Um, Sexual immorality is usually what it's referring to, but there are tons of ways we defile our flesh and you can kind of do a little word study on that. And it says we reject authority. Again, here we are rejecting authority and we slander the glorious ones. Okay. So when you see this glorious ones, it's talking about the people that are walking in righteousness. I also think about people who go on um, YouTube and they are calling out, oh, it's such and such a prophet, such and such a false prophet. You don't need to follow this person because they're a false prophet. I have found if you will amplify truth, um, that people can begin to discern what's good and bad on their own. The Holy Spirit can do that work. And not to say that as brothers and sisters, we don't need to hold other people accountable. I just think we have to be more about the business of 
also plotting to get Felicia Maysheimer also has a really great book called Good Church Stories because we hear all about the church drama and church hurt. These are about times where the church has done what it was supposed to do. So I think it's kind of great to allow our discernment to develop that balance, that tasted balance. Um, in, in So we're not walking more according to the world. All right. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.12 that we have not received the spirit of the world, but we've received, received excuse me, the Holy Spirit so we can understand what we have been freely given in Christ. So he actually says we haven't been given that spirit anymore. We were given a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that fruit is going to help us understand we've been freely given. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 that that spirit, that the spirit teaches us that in later times that people will depart from their faith. They will pay attention to a deceitful spirit. So it's it's deceptive. It's not going to come loud and arrogantly. It's actually going to try to slip in through a back door and slowly pull you away. I always tell my daughters this um, because they think like a little bit disobedience isn't a problem. And I tell them the Bible tells us that a little bit of leaven spoils the whole lump. And that's because if I'm walking in a straight line and two people walk in a straight line and one person turns just a little bit, Math will tell you that the two trajectories they're on now, they keep going, as you can see, they kind of spread out. Even if they start close together, the further you walk in that way, it one small pivot can completely change your course. And I believe that's what Paul's drawing his attention to. He's saying that people are going to depart from their faith because the deceitfulness of the spirit is it makes it feel comfortable. It feels good. Everybody's doing it. I'm going to call out a particular thing that I've seen a lot of people do right now, mixing, manifesting and sage and crystals with the word of God. And the reason that's a problem is because the Bible is consistently telling us that whenever we add in magic or magical elements, some other ways of divining help other than trusting our God, even when he's absent, meaning we don't hear him, we don't see him moving. Um, not that he's not working, but that we put our faith in him alone to be our guidance. So that's just some ways I've noticed that people deceitfully mixing recently. Um, and it says they pay attention to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And it says, but Philippians 3.3 3 tells us we do not put confidence in our flesh, but instead we worship by the spirit of God and we boast in Christ alone. I think this is so good because this particular section of Ephesians talks about um, not boasting in our own works. And I think that's great because he's saying we boast in Christ alone. Our works are null at the feet of Jesus because his ultimate work is the one that needs to be glorified. Everything we do, all of our works are pointing towards him, the greater work he did at the cross. Um, and so we have been free from all of this, from the power of God, and we've been saved by his grace, his steadfast love, through his kindness, okay? So now I'm gonna jump back into that text that we were reading and look at some more of these verses here, okay? So it says that we also lived in it, we all used to live in the desires of our flesh. We were doing the will of the flesh in our mind. We were children of wrath by nature. Guys, we were born that way. And it says, and the rest of them were, but God, okay? I love a good holy but. We got a couple of them in here, but I love a good holy but that comes through. And it's saying, but God, he was so rich in his mercy. I want you to get the lavishness of this. Because of his great love with which he loved us, we were dead in trespasses. And trespasses are different than sins. This is just like kind of missing the mark. Um, sin is not living up to God's holy standard, but trespasses, I like to think of it sometimes 
um, in Hebrews where it says the sins and weights. So there are some things that we know are sins. Those really go contrary to what God's wanted. And sometimes trespasses are things that may not be unholy. Um, it may be permissible, meaning it's something God gives us space to do, but they may actually leave us um, in a wrong spot. A good example is I know a lot of people can watch certain things on TV. There are certain TV shows and things that I just can't watch, one of them being the news, because the way it affects my spirit and my ability to hear God is just different. And so me to continue to do that may not necessarily be a sin. It might fall more in the trespass category where I'm just missing the mark. I'm setting myself up for there being a barrier in my intimacy with Jesus. So he's saying we were dead in trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ, okay? By grace, you were saved. So when Jesus got up, y'all, we got up. If this is a Baptist sermon, Baptist church, they would say he got up. Um, one, one of my line sisters is uh, in our group. And so she'll laugh at that because we used to always joke about that when we were together. But um, we always say he got up, you know, and he did. He got up with our power. But when he got up, he didn't get up by himself. It says in verse six right here, it says he raised us together and seated us. He raised us together and seated us together in the heavenly places of Christ. We are seated with him. And this is where our sisterhood gets its um, call scripture from, guys. Verse six, it says we are seated with him in the heavenly places because I want each of us to be reminded of who we are in Christ, that he picked us up out of our dirt and out of our mess. He picked us up out of our sin and gave us a seat of royalty. And when we take on this new identity of royalty and of queens, when we sit in that anointing, then we can begin to serve other people and live our lives from a seated position, not trying to earn a seated position. And that can change everything. And it says, he's going to show us the surpassing richness of his grace and kindness. And it says, because by grace, we were saved through faith. Faith, It's not of ourselves. This verse eight is going to set the precedence for us for when we're getting ready to go into verse 11 here in a second. So it says, for by grace, you were saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, meaning there's nothing we could have done to earn it. It says it's not of works so that no one can boast. This is important. And I'll show you why when we get to the Jewish and Gentile believers here in um, verse 11, it says, because we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works. He prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. Guys, when he created the earth, he considered us. He considered how he would save us and bring him to himself. We have been created for good things. And the way we can do those good things is recognizing our new identity and knowing that when we recognize that we are we are royalty, that we are the bride of Christ, that he is the king of kings, that he sits us on this throne as queens, that we have the authority to walk and usher in his kingdom under everything he set aside for us to do. Okay, so... That is the end of the first couple of verses. I'm going to pause just for a little bit, just to kind of cut a cream bait for those who are just jumping in. Okay, so now we're going to jump into studying uh, the next section, which is going to be verses 11 through 16. Okay, this whole section is talking about the Jewish and Gentile believers. So the rest of this chapter is really focusing in on that. And this kind of builds on the back of what I was telling you guys in verse six. It says, or um, excuse me, verse eight, where it says, for by grace, you are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. It's not from works so that no one can boast. Okay. Verses eight through 10. I learned these verses in a summer camp. Shout out to my mom for taking me to summer camp at Metropolitan Baptist Church. 
I don't even know how old I was, but I remember learning this and it getting so deep in my heart that I, 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 it, it never left. Okay. This idea that you are saved through faith, that there was nothing I could do to earn it. So there's nothing I could do to ruin it. And so from that, we get, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, the so-called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh. So he starts calling people out right here. He says, now remember. And I thought this was important. He says, don't forget where you came from. He just reminded us. He said, you were dead in your trespasses, that you were subject to the world. He says, do not remember, do not forget who you were. Now, I know a lot of people try to remind, say, you know, you got to forget about your past. You got to go and, you know, kind of just go and let that thing go and move from it. But I heard a really good message recently where she said, in our royal position, the way we remain humble is by remembering where we came from. But the way we don't get, get insecure is by accepting where we are now. So we don't want to walk in insecurity, not certain about who we are in Christ. We need to walk in certainty and in our authority. And we do that by knowing who our husband is, who our spouse is, and that we are as a church, the bride of Christ. We know who our savior is and we know who our king of kings is and that he gave us that authority. But the way we don't let it go to our head, because humility is truly, the rest of this passage is really talking about humility. The way we don't let it go to our head and humility is just, let me give you a simple definition. It's having a right view of yourself in light of who he is. It's not about putting yourself down. It's not about false humility and not recognizing your gifts and the talents he's giving you. It's none of that. It's just having a proper view of who you are related to who God is. Okay. So if we're going to walk in humility, the way we do that is we don't forget where we came from. And so he calls them here to remember where they came from, but it's another reason. And it's because he wants to contrast them with where they are now. So this is where we get this kind of side by side. Okay. So he says on one side, you used to be Gentiles in the flesh. You were called uncircumcised, but those who were circumcised. And then he gives this little caveat here. He says they were circumcised in the flesh and it was made in human hands. Okay. And he says made by hands. And I'm going to come back to that in the flesh made by hands and why it's important. He says you were, then he goes on, he says, you were apart from Christ. You were without Christ. You were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. So he's like, you had no part over here. He's talking about you had no part in Israel. And then he says, and you were strangers. Um, you were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners and you had no hope without God. Okay. He just lays it on thick. If I was reading this, I'd be like, okay, thank you. Like, this is like somebody telling you a list of all the things that were not great about you. Like you just sucked. You used to, you know, it's like going back home and one of them grandmas or aunties telling you, girl, you used to be so chubby. You used to run your mouth. I didn't think you was ever going to find a man. That's the way this reads to me, y'all. And I don't know if y'all put yourself in the text sometimes, but I'm like, man, I don't know how I would feel about this. But then we get to another holy but here in verse 13. We get to this button. It says, but now, okay, and I'm gonna highlight it and make it kind of a brighter color. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Guys, I want you to do this with me. Say brought near. Okay, so I want you to imagine someone who's diseased, think of COVID and monkeypox or something, whatever, you know, all of that put together, whatever disease you want to think of. And imagine how they have to be kept far away from you. It's not that you don't love them. 
it's not that you don't want to be close to them. I think about all the, the times I've had to quarantine just in this recent pandemic. They are far away from you. You want to bring them close, but they're not clean. And if you do, not that God would be contaminated by our sin, but out of respect for his holiness, he does not bring us close in an unclean state. Okay. That's crucial. God is not afraid of our sin. He just can't draw us near in an unclean state. Okay. It says, but now you have Christ Jesus in you. And so you were far away, but because of the blood that washes us white as snow, we can come close. And I don't know if that hits y'all the way it hits me, but to think that God set all of this in action so he could draw me in, you got to get that image in your head because once you do, you recognize he didn't do all of this to bring you in close to then push you away for any reason. That is why Romans tells us that there is no height, nor that there's no angel, no principality, nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God because he put all of this into effect to bring us close to him again. We were close to him with Eden. He wanted us to be with him. Okay. And that's the contrast. So then he says, but now Christ is in you. Okay. This is amazing because he, the, even the Jewish people prior to this did not have Christ in them. This right here, he's saying you have Christ in you. And that's just so amazing because again, they didn't have that. So he's saying, not only are you not afar off, not only are you not excluded from Israel, but you can come close to me. And I get this image because I've been studying in the Old Testament of the temple and the tabernacle that Christ built, um, excuse me, that the Lord had them build in the wilderness. He had them build this, guys, because he wanted to be with them. He led them into the wilderness. They built this tabernacle. And the whole reason he took them this way was so they had time to get to know him. And so they were a sinful people. The whole book of Leviticus is all about all the sacrifices he had them do so they could come close to him. And even still, the, there was only one high priest that was allowed in. He was only allowed in once a year. Um, and he would atone for all of the people. Jesus became our high priest. He went in and spread his blood on the altar. Okay. Every other sacrifice was done way out in the outer courts on the bronzed um, altar. But there was once a year, the holy, the um, high priest would go all the way in. So our high priest, Jesus Christ, went all the way in and he didn't just shed a lamb's blood. He shed his perfect blood there. So that veil was torn and now God could be permanently close to us. In the Old Testament, here's something we often misunderstand. We think that God is afraid of our sin or that God could somehow be tainted by our sin. And that's not true. God himself parked himself in a tabernacle to be close to his people. He left heaven from earth like in the form of Jesus to be around sinners. He said, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sinners to call them to repentance. I came for the sick. He came for those who needed him. And I need you to get that in your head that he wanted to be close to you. And so in the Old Testament, all of those sacrifices were to take them from one state to another. So there were three states. There was unclean, clean, and then holy. So unclean, just as it sounds, uh, sinful, made some kind of stake, touched a bad body. Clean, which is they've gone through all the ceremony processes to be able to come into the presence of the Lord. And then there was holy, things that were set apart for use of the Lord, the priest, the priest's garments, the incense, the altars, certain things that were holy and they were meant to be only used for God. And I think it's just a beautiful thing that God took us from being unclean, which he shows them here. You were unclean, alienated, uncircumcised, walking with your flesh. 
And then he, by the blood of Jesus, made us clean. And then now we know and we can see it in Second Peter where Peter tells um, them that we are holy priesthood. We get to go in and it says we are holy. Did y'all catch that? He moves us into this next place. And the way we get to be in holy is being set apart to him. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because I really think that's what God wants to pull out in this section for us. And he says in verse 14, I'm going to put it back up. Excuse me. It says, for he himself is our peace who made one and broke down the dividing wall of partition. That's that veil, y'all, that was separating us from being able to go in. The enmity and his flesh. It says, invalidating the law of commandments and ordinances. And it says, in order that he might create the two in himself to one new man, thus making peace. Now, I want to say a little bit of caveat here. It says, a lot of people think the old, the law doesn't matter. It's invalid. It's not good. The Old Testament, I could tell you a whole lot about how the Old Testament points to the grace of God, and it really was just a foreshadowing of Jesus. But what he was, this verse is saying here is not that the law was evil or bad, but that Christ fulfilled it. And so now there is no point in trying to go and make yourself right by God by doing all those sacrifices. This is good because remember, he's comparing Gentile believers to Jewish. He's saying, you don't have to do all that. You ain't got to go through all that circumcision. You don't have to go through all of those sacrifices because Jesus fulfilled all of it, which is why I love, remember I pointed out where it said back up in verse um, 11, this right here, this in the flesh portion. Um, I wanted to point it out because it says right here in verse 14 that he himself is our peace who made one and broke down the dividing wall of partition and enmity in the in his flesh. So we go from something that's done in the flesh by mere mortals to God coming in his flesh and offering up his flesh to circumcise our hearts, to remove the skin and show us as marked and set apart for him. And I love it because the verse 16 comes together and it says, so we might reconcile both one body to God through the cross, killing the enmity himself. He killed the dividing thing himself. He took it apart for himself. Okay, y'all. Um, it says he he took it apart for himself. And I'm reading, sorry guys, I just realized my view is different than yours a little bit, but um I'm reading, I think, in the Lexingham Bible. I don't think I'm reading in the CSV. But it's giving you the same thing. Um, but this particular, it says he he basically cut it down. It says he tore the dividing wall of hostility is what it says in the CSB of what you can see. He did it in his flesh. But verse 16 says he did this so he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, which he put hostility to death. Wow, y'all. Wow. I need you guys to get that. I needed to like sink into your bones. What he was doing here was he was trying to, um, now you can see what I'm highlighting. <laughs> it says um, he basically put to death. He canceled all of that separation between Jew and Gentile. He canceled all of that separation between, um, for our modern terms to modern old saints and new saints between generations. All of that, we are one body. Because if you remember from last week when we studied chapter one, we found out that the will of God is really just to bring everything under Jesus, under his feet, to reconcile it under him. That's what we found out last week in chapter one. This is exactly what we found that Paul is continuing that same thread. He says, the whole point of all this was so 
excuse me, he could bring us together under one body. It was God's will to reconcile us, y'all. The whole point of this is that the two men, the, the Jewish people and everybody else will become one, a brand new thing. And what we both get is access to the new spirit. What we both get is what we're going to go through in um chapter, excuse me, in verses 17 here in a second. But I don't want to move past this too quick. I want to pause and make sure we get this. It's saying that we were circum, we were they we weren't circumcised. We had no Christ. We were excluded. We didn't even have citizenship. We were foreigners to the promise. We have no hope. We had no God. But now in Christ, we have been reconciled. Our accounts have been made right. We have been brought into the family, and it said it's resulted in peace. Now this word peace here, I'm gonna go ahead and highlight it for us because that word peace, what it's representing for us is. Um, I want to tell you what that means in the Greek. It means a quietness. It means a rest, but it also means a prosperity. So when you hear the prosperity gospel, I want you guys to start thinking of it in terms of peace. We are prosperous when we walk in the peace of God. And that doesn't mean we don't have trials. That doesn't mean things doesn't happen, but it means we are settled and quiet within ourselves because we are coming to a place of trusting who he is and knowing that the ultimate will of God is to bring everything into him. And that's still in the process of being worked out in Revelation God is going to bring everything under um, Jesus Christ and everything is going to be reconciled under him. So we are moving towards that peace and he came to be that peace in us. So there's no more battle between Jew and Gentile. There's no more battle between generations. There's no, I love in other um, books, it says there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no Hebrew. There's no slave, no free man. We are all one in Christ. Okay. Amen. Amen. Okay. We're going to jump in now to the next section. So right here in verse 17, you can see it says he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away. Remember, that's all of us. Each of us were far away and the peace to those who were near. Notice now we've gone from comparing the Gentiles to now talking about what we both get. This is why I wanted to divide this section up here. Because now we are talking about the access that everybody has. And from this point on, Paul is going to speak to us by what we all have, okay? He wants us to all understand this. So at this point, it's no longer separating Jew from Gentile. And he uses some really beautiful imagery here that would have meant something special to the people in this time that I'm going to pull out. Um, but he, he starts using language that previously was only used with Jewish people because he wants them to know that they are a part of the family of God now, that there's nothing, that you came, he came and proclaimed this good news of peace, that we could finally rest, we could have this quiet there. Those who were far away and those who were near, Jews, you too. It says through him, we both, I love there's this <laughs> gift go around right now and I know who it's from, but I can't remember his name, but he's like capital B, capital A, cap capital B, capital O, capital A, capital F, both. And they're like, both, both. He doesn't spell both correctly, but he's like both. And that's what I'm thinking of right now. It says that we both have access in one spirit to the father. And we see when we see that capital S, we know we're talking about our friend, the Holy Spirit and it's saying through the Holy Spirit, we now both have access to the father. Because like I said, in Old Testament times, the Jews weren't allowed to go in either. So we don't just get to boldly go to the throne of grace. They get to go boldly to the throne of grace. So instead of one priest going in for them once a year, they get to go in 
and they get to go behind the veil and they get to go to the mercy seat. What was behind that was the mercy seat. This is where the presence of God dwelled. And is that imagery not hitting you that the gold that was laid on that altar there, that Jesus came and he is our mercy seat. He gave us mercy. His blood was sprinkled there. And now the very presence of God, y'all, is tangible to us because we can access the father. You got to put this whole thing together. It's saying we were so far off. That's all Paul has said. But the goal of God was to bring us close. And now we get to sit with that. Um, there was this imagery that was given. I believe it's at the end of Exodus where it says that the tabernacle um, of meeting, the tent of meeting was so filled with the glory of God that even Moses could enter it. And um after that, we go into Leviticus where he starts breaking down all of these things that they can do so that Moses can go back in and enter. But <laughs> we don't even need that. That thick cloud of smoke, that tangible presence of God is now with us everywhere. We don't even have to wait till we go to church, y'all. We have access to the Father because of the death of the Son and by access through the Spirit of God. And then it says, so then you are no longer foreigners. You remember now we're contrasting. It says y'all were foreigners, y'all were excluded, y'all were y'all had no it says no, not no more. You are no longer foreigners and you're no longer strangers. But it says before back in verse 12 it told us that we were excluded from the citizenship. It says but now you are fellow citizens with the saints. Okay, guys, remember the church in Ephesus sat in a Roman time, okay? The Roman citizenship was one of the best things you could have at that time because it gave you access to so much. One of the reasons Paul even made it to write this church and write this uh, epistle was because he could not be handled. They wanted the Jews wanted to execute him where he was. You can go read about it in Acts 19. And the reason he makes this journey over here to where he ends up on house arrest in Rome is because he appealed to Caesar. That was one of his rights as a citizen. He could actually ask for Caesar to listen to and decide on his case. That was one of the things he could do as a citizen. If you weren't a citizen, you were subject to the law of whatever land where you were. The same thing, God is trying to get us in our mindset. We are now subject to an entirely different system. We are subject to the system of heaven. I know people love to say, I am a heavenly being having an earthly experience, okay? We are both. We were put on earth but we have given given access to heaven, but we are ambassadors and citizens of heaven, not of earth, which is why he doesn't want us listening and being led by the spirit of this world. We are supposed to be led by the spirit of the realm we come from. We are supposed to be lining ourselves up with the spirit of heaven, with that spirit should be producing fruit enough because that is what we are supposed to be ambassadors of. And that is exactly what he's telling him. But the beauty is he says them fellow citizen with citizens with the saints. That word saints there used to only refer to the Jewish people. He is basically using language that had never been used for the Gentile believers before. He is saying, hey, you are one of us and we are all now members of God's household. And this is where the imagery changes. Okay. And I got to kind of show y'all my book here. So I'm going to zoom out for a second. And I had to kind of draw this. I hope you can see it. This kind of God's household here. because. This last imagery he gives us here is one of the most beautiful things. Um, and I completely underestimated it till I studied it today. Okay. So I just want you to get this kind of house, write yourself a little household in your journal here. Um, and we're going to jump into this last little section 
Um, and I think it's so rich. So we're, we're still in 17 to 22. And it says in God's household, and I'm going to read to you what it says while you're looking at this image. I just wanted you to kind of draw yourself a little house. And it says, you are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, that may sound a little bit weird if you know anything about houses, because a cornerstone literally is just one stone. But the foundation, people always talk about foundation issues. If your foundation is wrong, the whole house cracks and falls apart. Christ made sure to not just lay the cornerstone, but he chose the first apostles and prophets. He chose his disciples and then he chose Paul of Saul of Tarsus that he then met on the road to Damascus, who now became Paul, who was writing us this letter. He chose the foundation and basically discipled them himself to make sure it was laid well. Y'all, so we never have to worry if at the root of everything, even with all the shaking we see in the church, there is a stability because we are built on Christ. And even with the imperfection of humanity, we can trust the cornerstone. And it says in verse 21, and I'll bring it up, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about a cornerstone. Verse 21 here in red, it says, in him, the whole building is being put together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. And I'm going to end here. This is my last section I want to go through. And then after that, I'll go through recap. The chief cornerstone was laid first. It was the one stone that was laid in re- and all the other stones were laid in reference to this one. It bears the weight of the whole construction, meaning if this stone was off, then all the other stones would be wrecked. It orients the building in a specific direction and the entire building would be known as straight or true based on this stone. Guys, get the imagery here. Jesus is our reference point. When we look at how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to interact, how we're supposed to love, we look to Jesus. Jesus walked with Judas, knowing he was going to betray him, knowing that he would not be among the disciples. He walked knowing Peter would deny him and still made a plan for reconciliation. He told the women, go tell the disciples and Peter, after he got up, called him by name to let him know that you were still mine, that I've prayed for you, that you won't fail. He is our orienting thing. But then I read a design article and it talked about how in every building, and go with me for a little bit because I think this is so beautiful. Every building has three different types of stones when we're talking about masonry. We're talking about first a capstone, which are protective stones that are set up kind of towards the top. They have water runoff, so it protects it from damage. They're keystones that are wedge shaped and they evenly distribute the weight across the arch, but they're more decorative for aesthetics than they are for anything. And then there's the cornerstone. Our savior is not a capstone. He's not just a keystone, something decorative. He's our cornerstone. And it says this first stone was represented orientation, which I just told you, but also history and celebration. In ancient cultures, it was believed that the position of the cornerstone with the position of the heavenly bodies, the stars and the moons regulated the life, the fortune and the success of the owners, y'all. This is something we get in Jesus. Jesus came that we might have life more abundantly, according to John 10, 10. We get life and fortune and success in his ways under him. And so they used to place the stone facing northeast because they wanted harmony and prosperity. Is this whole section not about unity in Christ? 
when he ends with this cornerstone. And then there usually was a ceremonial ritual when the cornerstone was laid. The architects, builders, owners, dignitaries, or religious leaders would come and place a sacrifice on the cornerstone basically making an altar atop it to dedicate to their gods. They would dedicate wine, grain, water, or even blood atop of this. And guys, I about weeped when I read this, because if you take a little bit of time and go back to the Leviticus and read just like the first seven chapters, it's a lot about the sacrifice, but you will see that there were five types of offering, but they that included a wine offering called a drink offering a grain offering or an offering of first fruits. There was water that was poured out. And then of course we knew the blood of the sin offering. And that is what we can see in totality. Because remember Christ fulfilled all those old covenant rituals. He fulfilled them and they were dedicated to their gods, but our God is our cornerstone. So they knew this. The Roman empire was known for their buildings. So he's drawing this alliteration to say the way y'all celebrate on that cornerstone recognize the cornerstone you've been given in your life at this point in Jesus. And it says that they would eventually take relics and artifacts of the patron they were trying to honor and place it inside. And when we come into the 19th and 20th century, they would inscribe it with the name of the owner, the builder, the year was built, and it would hold over some capsules for time. Christ beautifully brings this imagery out to life for us because it is his name that marks his temple. It's saying that he is building up. And so it says the whole building in verse 21, the whole building being the church grows into a holy temple. And I think of that tabernacle. He's talking about, I set this up, but it's built on unity. Verse 22 tells us that the temple, it says we are being built together. The church is being built together. And he's talking, he says, you are being built together. It's not saying you individually, you as a body are being built together. And for his habitation, it says you are being built together because he wants to be our, he wants to dwell among us. The temple, like I said before, in the Old Testament was a place in the wilderness where God went to dwell within him. He got to say he doesn't just want to dwell in individual people. I know people like to say, I don't got to go to church. I don't need community. Church hurt me. But we need to be a part of a community, a body of believers, because it says God wants to dwell not just within us in our own temples, but also in us as a church all together. Guys, it blew my mind when I read that. So here's some final takeaways. So in chapters and verses one through 10. I want you guys to remember that we are seated with him. There has been a royalty change and that God does have good works for us to do. But the only way we can do it is if we are leaning into the spirit of God. That is a passive act. God is producing fruit in us. The first goal is to get to know God. And as we get to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we get to know the Lord, he will begin to move us out of walking according to the spirit of disobedience and walking according to the Holy Spirit. And God will give us those markers as fruit. A lot of times we spend our time trying to change our behaviors, not recognizing that love, joy, peace, patience, self-control is a fruit. You cannot make a fruit grow. It has to be nurtured. And the only way we nurture that is through intimacy. Um, verses 11 through 16, he was reminding us about the unity that there is a level field. We are all equal saints at the feet of Jesus. Acts 10 verses 32. 34 through 35 tells us that Jesus has no partiality, okay? And he says that we can all find our hope in him. And so we have to think about 
Are we okay living in disunity with our brothers and sisters? That's what God was calling me to. Are you comfortable living with an attitude with other people in the body of Christ? That's something I got to switch. And then the last section in verses 17 to 22, it's that imagery of the cornerstone for me. Leviticus tells us that those altars were laid there to make us clean so we could come into God. Remember I told you there were three steps. You were either unclean, clean, and then there were things that were set apart to be holy. We were unclean, but by the blood of Jesus, we have been made permanently clean. And it says, as we walk in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit anoints us afresh. And the anointing, that word is a word for shepherds because shepherds would take the oil and rub it down the head and the front paws and the front body of the sheep. And the whole point was that it protected the sheep. It marked them by scent, but it also protected the sheep against something called mites. They were little bugs, similar to ticks that would crawl up and bury in the ear and the brain of the sheep and it would drive them mad. And it would basically make them go contrary to their belief, um, their normal things. So sheep herd, they stay in groups, they would go run off. They trusted their shepherd to share them, they would run and be afraid. So if you find some of that running and distancing in you, you might have a little bit of a might, some distraction, some attack of the enemy in your ear that you might want to listen to the Holy Spirit because it says that the Holy Spirit smears us with that anointing, that, that, um, that evidence what we were talking about last week in chapter one, he secures us until the Holy Spirit comes back. But it's also for our protection. And it's through that anointing that we then, just like those things in the Old Testament, become holy priesthood set apart for his use. So the question for me, I had to stop, stop and say, OK, am I OK just being clean or am I going to allow God to smear me? to begin to change my mindset through the Holy Spirit, through the fruit he's working in me? Am I going to spend the time sitting in his presence, getting to know him so I can be set apart holy for those holy works he set apart for me to do? Okay, those are my few takeaways. Um, and like I said, I will segment these up so you can listen, but I want to hear from you guys. I know I dropped a lot on you guys. Feel free to listen to this as many times as you need to. These videos are not going to go away. Um, after our group, I'm going to make them public. So you'll always be able to access them even after I take these threads away. But I want to hear from you guys in the group. What is God speaking to you? Um, I read the Bible re recap and it's really been helping me. And she always asks, what is our God shot? What is something of God's character that we're seeing? Um, and we're supposed to reflect. What is it? Some, what is this something God wants you to believe? What is it something he wants you to start doing? What is it something he wants you to stop doing? Or was it something he wants you to keep on doing? And I'm always authentic and tell you guys, for me, God has been calling me deeper into intimacy. I've been doing a lot of trying to work and trying to get things working for my mental health or for the kids and trying to understand them and working in my marriage. And I've been trying to do a lot of things to fix it. And God is like, you're, you're working at the wrong end. Come back home, draw back into me and intimacy and let the fruit of those things be an outpouring of your time with me. So that's what God's calling me to do this week. I'd love to hear what he's calling you guys to do. Thank you for tuning in for another week. Um, so excited to have you guys in the study. I hope it is blessing you and it's rich. And all right, God bless. Have a wonderful night. You've been listening to the Seated Sisterhood podcast. Would you take a moment and subscribe and review this podcast? When you do that, it helps us to equip and encourage so many others as we seek to spread the gospel by helping others dig deeply and confidently into their work. Thank you so much for joining and taking your seat at the table today. Catch you in the next episode.